You know what I saw the other day? I saw an ad for some maple syrup label company or whatever, and it was just literally like a stack of pancakes and some song playing, and like an invisible hand just pours maple syrup on them for like literally two minutes in real time. Oh, wow. So you just watch maple syrup just drizzle and drizzle and drip and drip and drip. No explanation, no narrative, what, just like a song playing, like a picture of the thing, and then like pancakes just bleh. That's just like hypnotic. That's it's pure some cynical desire, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pure cynical desire. <laughs> Uh, well, I am a, a pure, real Vermont maple syrup person. That's oh, okay. something we could definitively That's say. That's an important yes. statement. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, broad scope, I am a upstate New York native. Um, I moved to Boston, like, almost five years ago now because I went to BU and then decided to stick around town, uh, which is obviously how I got associated with the Fuse because... Bill was friends with one of my old professors and those kind of channels, yeah. Um, but I have a full-time, like, day job kind of thing, so that takes up a big, big chunk of my, my 40-hour work week. Um, and I'm also married, even though I'm only 23, which is usually things that people are like, what, what? But I think that's still legal, though, right? It is very legal, yeah, okay. yes. It's very, and depending <laughs> what part of the country, I'm an old maid to be yeah, married. So. Sure, sure, right. <laughs> it, it touches and goes, yeah. Yeah, right. But um, Well, if it's right, it's right, you know? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Congratulations. Absolutely. I appreciate mm-hmm. that, yeah. Yeah, I, I um, graduated. I got uh, married. I went to Europe for the first time and started a full-time job in, like, a two-month span. Oh, wow. <laughs> last, last summer. You're off and running. Um, yeah, thank you. Good yeah. on you. Yeah. Way to be. What did you study yeah. at BU? Uh, I was a journalism major. Journalism. So cool. was also relevant. Yeah. I used to host my own show on the on-campus radio station um, for like my whole time there. And I was the studio productions director. So I was in charge of setting up things like these or like live performances and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Deanna, what do you write about in the arts fees? <laughs> uh, mostly music reviews. Right. Yeah. And you've been doing a lot of those. Yeah. Those are really cool. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I randomly did the, the one about Sleeping Weasel's production because Bill kind of floated that my way. Um, and then I also did another one, like, fairly recently of this thing called The Happy Place. And that's, like, I I did a few kind of, like, random here and there articles when I was in school, but pretty much predominantly stuck to music reviews, so... The happy place thing was kind of just like this random offshoot from that but that's a visual arts installation right? yeah yeah i i wanted to um just give it a shot and like check it out and cover it just to see if it was like worthwhile pretty much um but i found that the place was total trash so then i was kind of <laughs> i was sort of happy because i was like man now i can rail against like everything by talking about this place yeah right because it was just so um the art installation yeah the art installation yeah it was awful what was was so bad about it it a lot of things i will say it was it was billed as kind of a like an experiential thing like it was supposed to be very um nostalgic and it would kind of just like bring you into this like quote happy place right But then when I started to look into, like, more, I guess, descriptions of it and, like, the taglines that they were using and stuff, it 
I, one of them said that it was the most Instagrammable pop-up in America. And I was like, okay. Hooray. <laughs> That's how you know it's good. Right, yeah, right. Right, so, right, right, right. So that was my first tip off that it might be like total crap. <laughs> did you write about this the arts news? Yeah, I think I, I read that. Yeah. I, it's ringing a bell for me. Yeah. And okay. It was just. I believe the article was called The Unhappy Place. Yeah, Perfect. I think so. Yeah. Bill's really good at the title. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bill's headline, yes, yeah. Um, I think that, like, somewhere in there I suggested that instead of being called the happy place, it should be called the sad state, because it felt like a a very um, mirroring society kind of moment. That okay. It was, it was billed to be this, like, fun kind of enjoy, you know, enjoying, like, happy place thing, but it was actually just full of superficial nonsense and it wasn't intentional like there wasn't any irony no yeah no they well i think to the people who put it all together to them a happy place is a place where you're just taking indulgent photos of yourself and your closest friends to me it just felt like very cheap and like a waste of time and and also the the thing that i really was like i can't this is egregious is the fact that it was thirty dollars for admission oh man what? It, yeah literally you're you're paying thirty dollars to take pictures of you and your friends in front of these like Seriously? backdrop things pretty much yeah. what? And, and the objects and stuff were were they just like tableaus or... Yeah, yeah. It was like some of them were more interactive than others, but they, it was essentially like six rooms, and that was the other thing. I figured, you know, a, a listing price thirty dollars, like this place is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. And the press contacts, they're like, yeah, it'll take you like an hour to get through, and. I just, like, walked right through in, like, 20 minutes, and, like, that was taking pictures of everything in sight, too, you know? They didn't have, like, it wasn't, like, a Beanie Baby room or whatever, was it? Like, uh, they, they didn't have one of those, but they, that was, that would be, like, right on the par of it. A lot oh, of the okay. rooms were very, like, themed, like, one was a cookie room, and there's just, like, wall-to-ceiling, um, cookies on, like, the wallpaper, and then huh. there's this huge like chocolate chip cookie you could pull the chocolate chips out and put your head in like one of those from like a like a carnival or a fair where you like take the photo and yeah like all that it was just very cheesy to me and i was like this seems like a gimmick it like, must why? be a joke like you'd think i, that I, I want it to be, be but it's yeah. really not they wow. were very like all the people working there were super like sincere they were like oh isn't this so fun and, yeah right yeah i oh, guess God. the um it was bad the, the, the standard sort of understanding of the art world, uh, or at least the contemporary art world and the gallery space, is that it's all shit. Yeah. And the only reason why anybody makes any money as an artist is because, like, they're basically all in on the joke together. Yeah. Or, like, they know somebody or, like, the artist is already rich and like, yeah. they have rich friends that say, oh, this is this great thing. Check it out. Put your head inside a cookie. Doesn't yeah. that make you feel like you're in a warm cookie? It's like, no, I feel like I'm in a, <laughs> a carnival fan. Yeah. But, like, I'm in a dead... But you could have more mayhem. fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is seems mm-hmm. to be completely. I mean, nostalgia can serve, you know, some sort of social purpose, but usually like towards bad ends or towards yeah. like no end in and of itself, other than sort of this uh, fond removal from from the existent present and yeah. you know the potential future. That's exactly what I think um, it was. Yeah. But you'd you'd feel more honest by getting like screwed over by like a carny. Yeah. You know, at the Franklin County yeah, exactly. Fair in upstate New York. Exactly. That, you know, going for it. Yeah. 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 It's like, exactly. I know I'm not going to throw this ring on the fishbowl, but, you know, 
I'm going to have a good time trying. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm going to get fried dough and watch the tractor pull. Right. It's going to be fine. That That's a perfect uh, <laughs> That's not a bad way to day, spend. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and the county fair costs a lot less than... Oh, know. my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 30 bucks. You can eat the... your weight for $30 at a county fair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that place... And the other thing, too, was then I was reading in um, comments on, like... Because Facebook, an event, was how I heard about it. And in the comments, everyone... It was funny, because there were, like, two types of people. There were there were people that were complaining that, essentially, they felt hurried, because they wanted to stop at every little thing and take all of these pictures and all this stuff. But there were people standing in line just being like, well, we want to take our picture hurry it the hell up but then the other side of it was people complaining like oh this was actually really cheaply made and really cheaply done Mm -hmm. and i i spent a lot of money for like fishing wire basically (laughs) like those kinds of things or like you could see the the wear and tear of the objects being moved around from place to place and they didn't like try to clean it up a little bit or yeah just kind of like sloppy Generally. Don't go to the happy place. Yeah, don't go. To it's the funny happy that everyone's fighting over their chance to go to the happy place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, get out of here. This is my happy place. Yeah. Hurry up with my happy place. <laughs> yes. This is my chance to be. Yeah. In the happy Isn't it place. so funny? With it's, with a bit of reflection, this so could be funny. like the greatest. I mean, this is how you know arts critics work. You know, it could be the greatest art installation ever because it, it you know reflects the depravity of our shallow existence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it it, it definitely like, could. Literally does that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think if that was the expressed intention, then I would have liked it more. If, like, they, at the end of the tour, maybe, when they all get back to L.A., they'll be like, ha, we tricked you all. Right. It was actually making fun of all of you. I don't know. Or just a cardboard cutout of Nelson from The Simpsons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of that, as you're walking out. enough getting to know each other mm. <laughs> so now that we've worked that way through yeah <laughs> let's dive into the magazine yeah uh heck yes so jumping into the magazine the first piece we're going to talk about today is one from blake maddox blake maddox usually writes uh music reviews concert reviews for the fuse um uh gets lots of good scoops and interviews as well uh but this is a uh, book review about um intellectual history or the history of ideas which uh, in and of itself is a little bit of, um, in academia, I think a bit of a controversial Mm -hmm. uh, subject area to study because Mm -hmm. it's very much geared towards um, a non-post-colonial method of of historiography, I think, as well. Um, But this seems like an interesting book. It's called The Ideas That Made America by Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen. it comes from Oxford University Press, and uh, the title of the piece from Blake is uh, The Ideas That Made America, Not Made in America. As we know, we, we all pretty much come from somewhere else, but just that, uh, that title in and of itself suggests or might you know, offend some people with their uh, sensitive American sensibilities mm-hmm. who really want America to be unique and great and powerful and the best of all. And mm-hmm. we make things and we're, we're, the, we're the leaders of the free world and all that kind of stuff. But as this book demonstrates in this Blake talks about most of the ideas that shaped our political, cultural, historical consciousness early on 
obviously came from elsewhere, uh, but then even going on later into the 20th century and even to the contemporary day, mostly European thought influencing uh, American consciousness. He says, mm -hmm. although the point isn't made explicitly, the most important takeaway from the Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen's new book might be that the ideas that made America were often not ideas made by Americans. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Like, the thing that interest, that, that got me uh, excited about this thing is that this piece, particularly in, the, in Blake's review of it, is that I really think there's something kind of unique about the fact that America, all countries have ideologies, they have histories, they have founding documents and myths and things like that, right? And in some cases, places have had hundreds of years to build up that kind of culture. Right. Right? England's been around a long time. Russia's been around a long, around a long time. Hundreds or thousands. If not know. thousands. Yeah, Like totally. Iran is like a 5,000-year-old civilization. Oh, know? God, yeah, <laughs> of course. Israel, I mean, yeah. So the, um, there's, but for, but for us, as Americans, we really don't go back that far historically in a lot of ways, or at least modern America. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there were people who not only founded the country, but were very much concerned with what the ideas of what this country is supposed to be about yeah. would be, are, is really interesting to me. Um, and I think that's a really unique thing that we can claim because there's something where it's not just like there was a revolution, but there's also people saying, okay, now how does one do a government? Yes. You know? And obviously there's a whole lot of faults to the way they thought, but you know, you could have done a lot worse than the people who were founding the country in terms of like studying intellectual history, right. studying philosophy, right? right? And so, um, so the idea that like American ideas are not always coming from America itself is also an interesting thing because you have so many other people coming in, uh, and staking their claim, right? Obviously, the people in like in Massachusetts in the 1700s thought of themselves as English. So right. they, they think of themselves as, Amer as as Europeans. And so even after we have a country, they still basically consider themselves, you know, uh, English or, or, or whatnot. And then, but you have all these other uh, influx of ideas that are coming through. And I think that's really compelling. And so with what Blake's review talks about is he says that, that, that the, the author makes the point that the single major figure is not an American at all in American ideas, but an Englishman who never once visited the United States. And he says it's Charles Darwin. Yeah, I was. I yeah, that's kind of interesting. That too. is kind of interesting. Yeah. I think you know, it, it's it's like I would not have picked that person specifically. No. Um, but I can see it, and I think a lot of Americans have internalized a kind of a Darwinistic mentality. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it's also a misinterpretation. Oh, very much. Oh, yeah. Darwin too. Getting into like, the social Darwinism. Right. It's one of those things where, like, we talk about this all the time, Lucas, about like Americans' political attitudes and sort of the ways that people think and I, one thing i've very much noticed aside from the religious tradition which obviously is a huge part of american life even people who have a christian religious tradition or say they do or have that inheritance you know protestant catholic whatever mm -hmm. it baptist methodist there's still a mentality that just kind of americans have of like you have to work hard to survive and yes right absolutely yeah Internal there's capitalism totally totally yeah. totally and that you don't deserve charity and that yeah. like you know i work hard for my money i don't want to give it to other people the bootstraps mentality yeah. exactly yeah. which is itself that bastardized version of darwinism where we're yes. taking the what he finds to be a natural phenomenon in the animal kingdom related to a specific um uh, evolutionary process and then applying that to our social structure mm -hmm. but in reality it seems more like it was used as a justification for an existing social structure, yeah, you know, which is, which, is very much a materialist interpretation 
of how that happens. And so, like, one of the things with intellectual history is that, you know, some people get caught up in the ideas, but the ideas don't mean shit unless they, you know, uh, end up being taken into action. She cites uh, Thomas yeah. Paine's Common Sense, yeah. which was an influence on uh, uh, revolutionary thought 100%. at the time. One of the things that she says, going back to what you said about um, early Americans not really thinking of themselves as Americans, but as Europeans, she says, or um, uh, Maddox references how uh, the author says John Winthrop in his 1630 sermon, Model of Christian Charity, that he did not write this text as an American, but as a Puritan. In the 1770s, American revolutionaries imagined a classical past as a guide to a future America, which they filtered through their fondness of more recent thinkers like Montesquieu and John Locke. And that becomes a very American thing eventually, as you're describing, mm -hmm. that Puritan mentality, because that became, I think, an internal colonizing force within American culture, yeah. is that Northeast, old school, Anglo-Puritan mentality, uh, then mapping itself onto other regions in the U.S. that had different um, European and intellectual and, and, of course, African traditions and inheritances. Yeah. yeah, and like that, and what I would think of as the Puritan mentality is, in some sense... Right. And I'm always I'm kind of fascinated by this in the sense that like with Catholicism, I mean, I'm speaking in broad strokes, but with Catholicism, it's like, OK, you sinned, go and go to confessional. Right. Recite yeah. your thing and you'll be you'll be washed clean for, by yeah. the by the priest and so forth. There is a way in which you can kind of get your your bad stuff out. You can kind of cathartically release your there's sins. There's a process, there's a method. Yeah. There's, yeah, exactly. There's a prescription, right? Go, mm -hmm. go do ten Hail Marys and then don't, you know, hit your and brother. It's all good. Yeah. Right, and you're good. Yeah. And um, so, but with Protestantism, with Puritanism especially, which is obviously like our American inheritance of it, there really isn't like a no. way you, there isn't a guy you go to, there isn't like a no. chant you're supposed to do. It's just think about what you've done. Well, there is a and, guy. Oh, there is a guy. His name yeah, JC. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But that's you the know. whole thing. There is a much more long term. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a big commitment. Yeah. So instead of going to the minute to the priest, I always call them ministers. It's funny. My Catholic friends laugh at me. Instead of going to the to the, I was like the minister. He's like, no, 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 no. But there isn't like you can't just go to kindly minister Dan and he'll talk you through it. I mean, kindly, kindly priest, you know, the, the priest and he'll talk you through it. It's that you have to sit and think about what you did mm -hmm. and you have to like brood on your sins mm -hmm. and God may not even totally forgive your sins. Yeah. That's also a huge thing, which is it the may Calvinist just be the way you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It may just be the way you are yeah. and you may not deserve grace, which is like a very fucked up mentality. I think that has I always think. really like bothered me yeah. just that, that, that millions of people can believe, you know, maybe I just don't deserve God's forgiveness. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like people really believe that. I mean, if you have a Calvinist tradition in your religion, like that is totally what you're getting in, right. in some ways. Right. Some people just get it and some people don't. And like, you better bust your ass to maybe hope that you'll get yeah. some appreciation for it. And like life is hard. We all know that you can work really hard and have nothing happen. Like we all have to learn that at some point or another yeah. in our lives. But for but when it comes to like the salvation of your soul and all these other things, like at least you should be able to expect that there's some kind of you know redemption that you could have. And if you're gonna take a Puritan mentality, that's not always guaranteed at all. No. And it and it's terrifying. But if you take that into a the Protestant ethic, you know, and you apply that to the rest of the world, to the rest right. of the country, it's like, well, no wonder people are like, I don't want my tax money going to some lazy bastard. Right, because right? that's, that's the basis of all of their sort of, like, moral, I guess, like, fabric. Pretty, and the inheritance, yeah. and the, you know, it's and it's instead of it being, 
Um, you know, what can I do for my neighbor? We're all in it together. It's, you know... Well, that's socialism. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, depending on what part of the country you're in. Totally. <laughs> that's, that's all... like, forbidden. Yeah. It's this horrifying yeah. concept. Yeah. You know? And, and I really think it has some really huge impacts. I mean, I think part of... Honestly, I think part of where Trump support comes from, in a certain way, not for everybody, but a certain, mm-hmm. like, slice of Trump support... Is that kind of ingrained sense that, like, a rich guy must know what he's doing? Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, that's what the election didn't surprise me at all, being from upstate, because everybody, I, I felt like I was living in some sort of, like, Twilight Zone episode, because I was like, all right, just a few years ago, all you farming people were complaining about everybody of that demographic, that, like, Wall Street guy, like, he was our antithesis. But now you're saying, like, oh, because he has money, that means that he must have worked hard. Even though I think most people know he never really worked hard a day in his life. Just had everything handed to him. Literally. But that's, like, that's, I think it's an interesting time in America right now. Because I think that when the country originally started, like, some of these ideas that they're talking about in this review, like, it was this idea that that sort of old money mentality was very much not what America was about. Like, we were going to be this place where your hard work did mean more than wherever you came from, whatever you had. Like, anybody should be able to just pick it up and have this American dream. And now we're completely inverted, where we're like, the American dream has been, like, on steroids and then also hijacked. Yeah, and, totally. And then sold back to the people that are mm-hmm. still trying to chase after it. Yeah, who are, yeah. Who are working, who are working Who are really actually hard working. Yeah. And aren't getting anything for it, or yeah. very, getting very little for it. Yeah. One of the things that I that I could maybe find trouble with the thesis of this book, we've already just started to, to hit on this, and it could very easily be because we have an American perspective, but mm. it probably maybe oversells or, or diminishes the level to which things became uniquely American. Yeah, I would say so. And and we've sort of focused on the, the sort of the uh, the Protestant ethics sort of tradition that that we've had going back to the earlier the earliest colonists that still persist today in some forms of our politics and and forms of some of our social um, arrangements. Mm-hmm. But then, as you get further into the review, she talks about. Or Maddox talks about how the, the the book references a lot of the the German intellectual thinkers that yes. end up leaving yeah. um, uh, Nazi Germany. Yeah, and your Adornos, your right? Arons. And they say, um, and Radner Rosenhagen writes that uh, intellectuals found this opportunity to directly help their fellow Americans in Roosevelt's New Deal reforms, which is like the total opposite of the entire mm-hmm. uh, uh, tradition that we've been that we've been discussing there as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which has a connection now to the AOC video yes. and, and yeah. yeah and right. the Green Deal yeah. right yeah and um, uh, Ratner Rosenhagen attests that the massive immigration of German-speaking intellectuals, artists, and scientists had an enormous influence on American academic and cultural institutions. In addition, the new crop of highly trained social scientists was seen. So we're talking like the New School and stuff like that. I think probably mm-hmm. seen as a valuable research resource for the development and administration of the New Deal. The emigres' theories of mass society became widely read and popularized as Americans sought to comprehend the dynamics of Cold War geopolitics abroad and observe dangerous mass tendencies hiding behind atomistic individualism at home. So again, everything that comes here eventually becomes its cultural expression is the cultural expression of the internal contradictions of the ideas that we inherit from from elsewhere. Is I think maybe 
yeah. uh, uh, a thesis that you could derive from what ends up being in this book. I don't know if the author ever gets there, but that's mm. sort of what it seems like to me. Mm-hmm. In our rabid individualism, we end up adhering to one form of populism of or another. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in our attempts at you know constructing mass society, it directly conflicts with our individualism, and yet you know we, you know you need as in order to do that type of nation building, you need some form of popular culture, some sort mm-hmm. of populist medium like newspapers or the radio or all that kind of stuff. And I think in America, we've probably just dri- driven ourselves completely <laughs> insane, <Yeah. laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to balance these uh, yeah. these bizarre tendencies that 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 have come from elsewhere and then make up who we end up being today. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, you get these massive the significant cultural expressions like jazz music or something, right. you know, mm-hmm. uh, a uniquely, if not the most uniquely American art form ever created. I know we say it all the time on the show and it's a cliche, but I mean, it is true. But again, uh, a process of dialectics, a process mm-hmm. of uh, uh, translating different cultures and history into the present moment, coming up with something completely new. I'm pretty sure that she, uh, the author that, of the book he's reviewing, I think, I think he says that she also wrote a book about Nietzsche in America. She did, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. Which is, I thought really, which I thought was really interesting. I haven't read it yet, but I read reviews of it back in the day and it really kind of uh, clicked with me. Because, um, you know, there's that sense, again, of like that individualism and that like you don't have those centuries of ingrained social order. Right. So it's kind of like, I don't know, just I do what I want to do. Right. I do what I feel like I want right. to do. And why should anyone, you know, tell me otherwise? And right. there's a lot in that. And I think that's kind of a very interestingly, like, Nietzschean mentality that, like, this is one of the places where Nietzsche's thought actually, like, rang the most bells. You know, it was in America. Um, which I, I just think is really interesting. And, of course, can be good and bad. I mean, yeah. there's something really wonderful about also that. Nazi also Nazi Germany, though. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And then there's something... The side yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. Like, there's something really disturbing about people who decide that, like, the world is the will to power. You know? Mm-hmm. And I do not necessarily endorse that, you know? But at the same time, like... There is something really wonderful about being able to throw off tradition and, um, you know, the uh, ideological oppression that people feel and, and to say, no, screw that. This is my life. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to be. Right, right. You know? And America weighs in the balance. I mean, you know, like, this is what I was saying to my friend the other day. It was like, you know, um, I think with Trump, we might be at a turning point where we're going to decide collectively if, like, we're, we've had it with rugged individualism yeah you know what i mean yeah like, I, I absolutely agree you think so yeah well i think that i i read this thing in the bbc just i think yesterday it was about this off comment that michelle obama made about trump and she compared him to a divorced dad and she her it, i think it was a bigger comment about society in america at large as much as like making that analogy with him but it was essentially saying, like, the U.S. is kind of a collective bratty kid of a divorce that thought that maybe spending some time with crazy fun divorced dad that'll just let you stay up late and eat ice cream and whatever. Yeah, indulgent. And indulgent, yeah, that would be fun. But then when you're sick, like, divorced dad doesn't know what to do. He's not going to come in and check on you. He's probably going to go get drinks with friends after work or something yeah and so it's like 
did you i think it what she was saying kind of was like it's will a great right like will the us learn their lesson about spending a couple summer vacations with divorced dad go back to mom i think she's really saying the democratic party yeah <laughs> like, right. she's she's right. she's giving the democratic party a gender yeah she she kind of did yeah, yeah saying no. that they were the ones making you eat your vegetables and you should appreciate it now mm-hmm. and so i don't that's that's the thing that i'm i'm like i'm not sure about and mm-hmm. also that would end up touching into the piece about aoc and the yeah, green absolutely. new deal yeah. and all but i i don't know i i don't know that i'm like super hopeful that everybody learned their lesson from this <laughs> like, well, right i mean like well divorced dads you know like they're they're kind of having like their moment right now yeah i'd say you know yeah. there's a lot of them i mean like we've had this uh massive explosion of like the dad in the front seat of his car in the parked in the driveway type youtube videos yeah oh, and, like really? Vine videos and stuff so you go on youtube you can just see angry white man in his car videos mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing which, my oh, uncle a did whole, that for yeah. a little while it's a whole genre on his yeah. commute like written it's usually somebody's life. uncle yeah see there you go <laughs> or somebody's <laughs> like d- divorced dad or something yeah. like that and um and, and they it's, rant they yeah rant, because yeah. like think about america america is the country of of the car of the suburbs mm-hmm. you know of mm-hmm. the uh uh the the stifled ambition the yes. idea the, the puritanical like the ideas kind of yeah that you know uh you're 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 not worth the effort that you put into life, and so then it just enrages people and makes them bitter and causes yep. divorces, and you know, yep. uh, and then so then the only mo- and so the dads, you know, uh, who have this probably these outsized uh, ideas of masculinity or what it means mm-hmm. to be a man and stuff, mm-hmm. who who live these, uh, you know, um, chilies and Panera bread, you know, in the <laughs> excerpt, you know, type lives, realize yeah. that their lives are stupid and postmodern and meaningless. Yes. Uh, and uh, miserable and short and brutish and all that kind of stuff. And so then their only moments of sanity and peace are when they're in their cars yeah. alone, away from their bratty kids, yep. <laughs> yep. away from like the wife that they don't love anymore and all that kind of shit. And so then, yeah. and then they have this amazing thing called the internet where they can just say whatever they want. And just talk to each yeah. other about And talk to each other, yeah. yeah. And get yeah. reaffirmed like in some sort of like self-help group. Absolutely. For, for, you see, you yeah. see that too as a term? Oh yeah, no, he just like described my uncle a lot, because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so accurate, yeah. I got an uncle like yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, like everybody has an uncle like that, yeah. yeah. And there really is like a kind of that crisis of like the the self-made man that people feel especially guys feel i think with what you guys are talking about that kind of reinforces it right that it's like that because in an old western say there's mm-hmm. the sheriff mm-hmm. and the sheriff is the guy it's like give me all the authority because i'm wise and i know how to handle right. it and yeah i'm the guy that makes all the decisions but i know how to do it right and maybe some of them do again right. some a simulation good well, right, yeah, yeah, but then it's like, but then after a while, it's like, well, maybe you actually don't know what the fuck you're doing, mm-hmm. and now you're falling back on the idea that, like, but I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. But this whole time I've been doing it, so I mm-hmm. clearly do, but right. now... But it's, now it's, it's like, all... actually, look at the state of the world. You yeah. voted for Donald Trump, you don't know what you're doing. Yep. Yeah. Then again, some of them probably did, though, and I think probably given the choice, you know, Donald Trump is the kind of person who, people like him because he'll go into a classy joint because he's got a lot of money mm-hmm. and he can buy his access to it. Mm-hmm. You know, the Democrats are the kind of person that would go into a classy joint because they're an elite person who deserves to be yes. there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But Donald your old Trump, Harvard, your yeah. old Harvard roommate, whatever. Yeah. Right. And 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 the Democrats would say like, please, sir, manners. You know, let's 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 yeah. act with decorum here. Right. Donald yeah. Trump will throw a wad of cash down on the table, buy the place, 
turn it into a um, a cheesecake factory yeah. and become everybody's best friend. Yeah, absolutely. That's why people like him. Yeah, because he's <laughs> like a fantasy. That yeah. They mm-hmm. wish that they could have that kind of power. Mm-hmm. And, that and anybody can go to a cheesecake factory. Right. (laughs) And that's kind of the sad part is that that's the kind of person you want to be. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's the thing. It's like, you know, they are. And that's why maybe I think that might be the key to the appeal, because it's like, no, Mm -hmm. he actually is like you. Mm -hmm. It's just that in if you turn the, you know, the the periscope five centimeters in a different direction, you realize he is nothing like you. Yeah. If he, if you don't pay your rent, you're on the street. If he doesn't pay his rent, he gets a, he gets an allowance from the bank for like 250 grand a month. Right, he can do a line of credit, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and he will always be able to bounce back. Yeah. In that sense, there is no way that your lives are comparable. Yeah. But he eats junk food, and he talks trash, and he treats women like garbage, so he feels... So he is like everybody else. So he is like (laughs) everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the intellectual history of the angry white man in his car. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. If any take... of you are listening, we love you. We don't want you to be like this. We want you to be happy. Go to the happy place, everybody. Yeah, there you go. Go to the happy place. Yes. I think it's also known as um, the Cheesecake Let's move on to uh, a uh, sort of the other side of this type of um, thinking. It's uh, something called Sleeping Weasel, which is a multimedia theater production um, art sort of collective type company that was founded in 1998 by David G. Hopkins. Uh, The uh, ambition or the aim of this was to produce independent films, live and audio theater, and a multi-genre experimental web magazine, originally based in Bristol, UK. Uh, it moved to the US, uh, where uh, Hopkins teamed up with Charlotte Meehan, uh, and then Charlotte Meehan has continued uh, Sleeping Weasel, uh, mostly in the Boston area, I believe, Yes. Uh, with uh, Adara Myers and a few other people as well. And the production that uh, you saw, Deanna, was called The Audacity, right? And it's definitely uh, not so much the intellectual history, but very much the material and lived realities of women's experience in uh, the U.S., but also probably international voices as well. Yes, yeah. There were some references to, like, specific stories from Guatemala, um, but I, I would think that a lot of the experiences discussed in the piece are definitely like universal international experiences women face so what is the audacity yeah well um the the whole title was the audacity women speak and i think that was kind of a play on words because sometimes just the act of speaking about certain topics as a woman is seen as being audacious um but it was it was essentially kind of like the brainchild of Charlotte Meehan, and she uh, was watching the Kavanaugh hearings right? and was kind of just like, 
this is crazy. Like, when will women ever be just believed? And, like, that's the end of the story. So it kind of got her thinking about, you know, like, what kind of a production could we do regarding this topic? And she thought to herself, you know, why even bother looking for something fictional? Like, why why not just create something out of the true stories of real women's lives? And so that's how she put it all together. And she ended up reaching out to, I think it was like over 30 women and compiled it into one cohesive perform. I think they call it a performance event because it's not quite a play. Like there, there are some multimedia aspects to it as well. And There's um, television shots and stuff early yes. on. Yeah, there are some clips from like really, really old shows like 1950s Queen for a Day up until like 2000s sitcoms like Two and a Half Men and things like that and then there were also you know like obviously political clips um, things from the Kavanaugh hearings Mm -hmm. but then also they sort of like detached parts of the stories that they told in the live performance that was happening and put them on the screen as well so they had uh, I don't think I think some of them were the actual women who wrote down their stories, but then other ones were just, you know, separate actresses kind of retelling the tales. Yeah. It's like a uh, a people's history version of the vagina monologues or something. Kind of, yeah. 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 And there, it was definitely a historical is like kind of a theme, too, because there was one line in it where they said um, the the history of women has countless stories like these no doubt you don't want to hear them and that was kind of I think like the general undertone of the whole thing was like these are all of the things that women want to talk about want to say want to draw attention to but the society at large doesn't want to hear it why do you think that they don't want to hear it what does it say about society yeah that's the thing yeah Yeah. it says a lot it's it says that um you know like we're still flawed that like even though we live in a very modern world we still have like like puritan era issues um and like that the the treatment of women is not as rosy as it seems and especially i think that's when part of it becomes a bit national because i think a lot of it is kind of saying like um this sort of american exceptionalism that we may think we have in a lot of avenues it definitely doesn't apply in the treatment of women and that like even though we want to believe we're so much more advanced than fill in the blank third world country women are still treated are still raped like as if they were in the middle of nowhere regardless of what city they're in in the u.s and that's like a hard pill to swallow going back to like the popular culture multimedia aspect you know Two and a Half Men, uh, or The Big Bang Theory, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, they, you know? they referenced uh, Two Broke Girls. Two too. Broke Girls, yeah. yeah. Again, kind of, um, I never watched any of these shows, so I don't know mm-hmm. much about them, but I mean, I've seen, I guess, enough clips or whatever to, to, to kind of like have a uh, a little bit of an idea of what it is. But you know, the Charlie Sheen guy is kind of like a, um, uh, a version of his crappy kind of philandering self yep. but he's but they put him in like a bowling shirt yeah <laughs> so yeah. so he's like kind of um he's, he's a character he becomes a caricature yeah. as opposed to like a monster yeah absolutely you know and um and like something like uh the 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 show about the nerds uh you know they, they just objectify the, the 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 neighbor from across the hall yep uh 
and that's kind of like the joke. She is the joke. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, and it, I mean, reveals, I suppose, which which is interesting to talk about. You know, some level of misogyny and nerd culture or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but more to the point is the ubiquitousness of this way of thinking about women yeah. as either you know the butt of jokes or as uh, nothing but objects. Yes. And how it's 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 broadcast on CBS, you know, or NBC. Yeah, or whatever, and that you know? it's it's so accepted. Yeah, yeah. On the most popular TV shows and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they they also too referenced. Um, there were a few different stand-ups, and I can't remember who all of the mm-hmm. different comedians were, but the last one was Louis C.K. And I was kind of like, oh, like that's that was one of those things where it was kind of like hiding in plain sight sort of a thing and it it is crazy to look back on it because you know like i i also thought he was funny back in the day like i watched louis you know like nobody you don't you don't think about it at the time and i think that was kind of Mm -hmm. the whole point of the entire production was like watching being in an audience watching a stand-up and seeing that like that audience just eating it up just Mm -hmm. like absolutely laughing like it's the funniest mm-hmm. thing ever, even though some of the jokes he made, like looking back on it, are like, wow, that was kind of sick. Like, I think they put that right in uh, a juxtaposition with things like Leave it to Beaver or like The Queen for a Day, because I think they were trying to make the point that like we need to start thinking ahead. Like we need to right. think of ourselves as a historic moment in time already to realize like how problematic and flawed and yeah, and that that women are oftentimes depicted, if not as sex objects, then as a butt of a joke. Mm-hmm. Or like the there was one quote from a Leave It to Beaver clip they had that I was like, oh my god, wow! And it was the kid was like talking to the mom, and and he was like, women have it so easy; they don't have to be smart; they just have to get married. And I was like. Was, did Eddie Haskell say that? Ouch. I think I think so. Yeah. It, and sounds, I it sounds like something Eddie would say. Wowza, wowza, and I'm sure wowza. June was just you know all flattered. Yeah, you know, she wasn't exactly clutching her pearls. You know? Yeah, and that's that's the thing of it too is yeah that all of these different media you see how like I guess basically the writers of the show like they put the women in those situations to just be like oh yeah haha and then watch, <laughs> watching that production and kind of. I guess using it as a lens for things I, I've seen since. Like I've been watching the old Saturday Night Lives recently because mm-hmm. they have like the first five original uh, seasons on Hulu. And so like I made it up through season two and seeing how there's so many misogynistic jokes and how women in the 70s, like se- a lot of 70s comedies, I think were very like infantilized and, how like at the time three's company yes yeah yeah Yeah. like you don't you don't think anything of it and then you look back on it and you're like whoa it's just nuts and so that i think that production that they did was just fantastic Mm because it it um it almost empowered i think all of the women there to to kind of like grasp that phrase like the audacity and just be more audacious i think was sort of the but then at the end of it um i also thought it was very cool that they did a circle talk to kind of you know like digest all of it because there were 
a lot of very, very tense moments and a lot of heavy topics, you know, discuss like sexual assault and abortion and kind of like the emotional trauma of that sort of thing. And I think a lot of the actresses did a great job. They were very, very raw and um, at times got like you could you could see that they were bringing something personal into that and with their emotion. Um, so at the end, everyone there that was kind of talking about it, it was nice because there were some older women, there were some like, people my age, and this one woman said, um, you know, I, I do have hope, though. She said, you know, my son is different, and I see some of the younger men today. They're, they're definitely different from the, the guys that I grew up with when I was young. and But I would agree with that, too. Like, there are a lot of people... Which... Who doesn't think their son is it? You know, oh, I'm sure, yeah. A right. Little right. Right. Maybe right. To, right. to her. My Billy would never. Right. And, yeah. and then, you know, we see, uh, you know, like that uh, that kid that was um like a star swimmer mm-hmm. at his high From school or, ca- or college or whatever. And is so he at Stanford B. or was he B. going to Stanford or I something? Think so. I think it and was the judge Stanford. decided, you know, this is just a kid that, you know, he Brock just made Turner. a mistake, you know. Brock yes. Turner. That's yeah. The, yeah, his name just sounds like somebody that would. Two horrible things. Just privilege. Yeah. And the the judge doesn't want to ruin the rapist's life. Yeah, doesn't want to ruin his life. Right. Yeah. Perhaps even that 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 woman's idea that you know her son is different is is even maybe trying to like convince herself of something that you know right may or may not be true. I mean, like, I don't know the person. I don't know the son. I'm sure he's a fine young kid, but I mean. That's what everybody said about a Brock Turner type. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And that, like, his parents did write in to yeah. the judge and were all like, give him a chance. Yeah, right, he's a nice yeah. kid. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's very true. And that's, I think that's that's a really good point to bring up because that's sort of the two sides of the coin is, like, I think they, they were both, um, like, spearing every man in America mm-hmm. <laughs> like, with the production, but at the same time saying, like, we don't want you to think of us as these, like, you know, there's the the whole nasty woman stereotype now. Like, nobody wants to be a nasty woman. Nobody wants to be this, like, um, Angry negative. shrew. Yeah, yeah, like, a, we're, we're at enemies or, or something. Like, mm-hmm. women so want to be So it's not like an anti-man yeah. production. Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't. It's, it's more about the way um, a woman's experience in some of these really disturbing situations can be overshadowed by yes. the abuser's experience or something or Absolutely. like we can't we can't just listen to the woman uh from the victim's perspective we also have to consider the feelings of the of the assailant you yeah know, which is which is a really bizarre uh mentality i mean like in a legal sense you hear both sides you know and mm-hmm. that's also one of the reasons why i think um things like sexual assault is such a uh has such this, this strange tone to it or 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 or, or, um dynamic Mm -hmm. because oftentimes court cases come down to he said she said yeah absolutely you know Mm -hmm. and so then like if a woman wants to seek justice probably not going to get it through the justice system no you know it's not it's not set up to to resolve an issue like that like unless it's on camera or unless you have somebody admitting to it you know somewhere else you know it's 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 rarely going to be the case that you can actually get um I mean, I don't necessarily know if it, if in you know if more convictions is a deterrent or har- harsher crime or harsher mm-hmm. punishments, whatever is a deterrent because you know you look at other types of crime, it's not it's not often the case either. But mm-hmm. I think that influences and informs the way that we talk about it in 
in like general discussion. You yeah. Know, it becomes a domestic issue. It definitely you know, does. Yeah. Or or something to be to be to be resolved uh, on a merely a personal level, and people won't, don't want to think about it as as a social problem. Yeah, exactly. And they another one of the stories that they touched on that like kind of speaks to that too was. This, I, I'm not sure what the age of the woman was when she wrote this all down, but she was talking about a, I guess, an experience she went through when she was in high school and she was a teenager. And so, like, yeah, they really did, like, touch on every stage of a woman's life. And they were talking at that point about kind of, like, puberty and just sort of learning, like, what it means to be a woman, quote unquote, and all of that kind of stuff. And also kind of like how generally generationally even women can kind of get it wrong between other women and they think that they're helping but they're actually really hurting and Mm -hmm. so there was this one story about this girl who was probably like 16 or 17 and she was at home with her parents who had like a family friend kind of a thing over and she was sort of like a tomboy she didn't really have boyfriends or anything like that and her mom was basically treating her like she was gonna end up like a spinster and Mm -hmm. I I think this story must have taken place in like the 70s 80s based on a little bit of the details but she was pretty much like telling her like like one of the quotes she said was you would be pretty if you tried and it was kind of like that sort of an opinion like the mother had and so this girl was I mean flat out like by modern definition sexually assaulted by this guy that was friend of a friend and came over and whatever but when he left and she was upset and tried to tell her parents about it they were like you should have been flattered like he was giving you attention that's you need a boyfriend you should what are you complaining to us you should give him a call and like that totally speaks to the whole justice system aspect of Mm -hmm. it because it's like how how are you going to go to a court and get some random stranger judge to believe you when you can't even have the support of your own family? Mm-hmm. And it's, that's, yeah, that's why I think going back to that phrase that, like, there are countless stories like this, but people don't want to hear it. It's because it, it does become, like, a, it's a societal issue, but it starts at the individual level. And it's about, like, changing your individual mindset about it and i don't think a lot of people want to do that and the objective of or at least one of the objectives of um sleeping weasel is to change people you know is to influence it's using art as as a political tool so like we we could get into whether or not this is a a propagandistic uh uh, performance yeah i would say in a way it was yeah Yeah. in that it it has it has a goal it definitely but i think Based on the way you describe the direction and the production itself in the um, in the review that you that you wrote, um, it's definitely one that that requires interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's a prescription, you know, like we were talking about, you know, right. like the Catholic Church, right. you know, other other than you know, maybe for a second just not doing anything, stopping and listening, mm-hmm. you know, as the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it sounds simple, but you know, sometimes it could be as simple as that. But at the same time, uh, you say that she wants to take this show to college campuses. Yeah. Because one of the reasons I think a lot of people have a lot of very little faith in institutions in this country anymore is, you know, because of things like the way that instances of sexual assault on college campuses, you know, is either 
uh, not taken seriously or the administrations don't know what to do with it or how to handle yeah. it, you know, or it's it's written off as, you know, young kids getting drunk and doing yes. kid stuff or whatever when, when in reality it's yeah. it's it's probably more directly related to the ways in which those kids came up through uh, a social system and a set of cultural values that led them to the point where they thought they could get away with being Absolutely. assholes. And then they went to a school right. that allowed them to be right. those assholes. That and, the, yeah. and the system protected yes. them as well. I mean, honestly, as a BU alum, I can say without a doubt that like my, the institution I just graduated from completely mishandles sexual assault and rape and totally tries to sweep it under the rug because that doesn't look good for ratings like you don't want to be a quote-unquote premier research facility where people can't walk down the street at night they don't want you to know that but i wouldn't walk down to his campus by myself at night and i i I didn't know i i mean if Mm -hmm. i did i was on my phone talking to somebody because like everybody once once you get past, you know, orientation, the stories immediately come out and you you know somebody that's that I mean, I myself, like I wasn't huge on the frat scene and things like that, but the the sorority uh, fraternity life at BU is much bigger than I think people realize until you get there and they're technically not allowed to have on campus uh, frat houses or anything, but because Alston has so many houses you can rent out, you get, like, unofficial frat houses, pretty mm-hmm. much. Or, mm-hmm. like, MIT essentially kicked their frats off of their campus. So they all went across the river to BU, and they're in some brownstones on BU's campus. And the MIT frats, I have to say, like, they they are terrifying. Like, I've, I've been to them. I've been drugged. I've met friends have been drugged. Like, they, they are absolutely, like... Because I, I think... For going back to that, like, comment about nerd culture and the misogyny within nerd culture, like, I think that those guys are definitely, like, the nerdy guys from high school that, like, now we're in college and we have a little bit of power, we have this house, we know that the BU freshman girls are, like, excited to feel like they have something going on and... Yeah, it absolutely gets taken advantage of. My girlfriend went to MIT back in the day and she was like, yeah, she was... She she didn't encounter too much, but she heard tons of stories, mm-hmm. and um, she definitely was talking. There was a particular house, I forget, a, dorm, a particular dorm, I forgot what it was called, and one of her classmates was talking about it, too. Mm-hmm. And there were, like, suicides, oh, like, yeah. people, like, running out of windows on acid, people yep. drop out, people, fall. people... There was a girl my sophomore year at Skull House that fell out of a second floor balcony because she was drunk and dancing and didn't realize that the window was open. And she landed on a first-story garage and thankfully only broke her arm because she was so drunk. She was probably just, like, completely loose. But yeah. but she was right back at it the next weekend. Like, that's that's mm-hmm. just, like, a, an accepted part of what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the friend of hers that I was talking to was just, like, disgusted by the storm completely. Because it's just, like, I mean, because it's, it's, it's nerd culture, it's the misogyny, and it's also, like, the stress everybody's under to yes. be the next Steve Jobs, yes. to be the next Bill Gates. Absolutely. Well, colleges are mostly, I mean, like, depending on which school you're at, but, like, we live in Boston, right? So, mm-hmm. like, a lot of people come here because mm-hmm. they're part of the, 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 the bratty, you know, chinless prod, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, products of the upper class mm-hmm. and the ruling class. And they come to college, which is just finishing school for the next 
crop of the ruling class, yeah, especially at your MITs, your Yales, your Harvards, right. those premier institutions. BU, I imagine, probably to some degree. Oh, yeah. You know? It's like all um, the people that were shooting for those and didn't get it. Yeah, right. But they, <laughs> right. they still want to come right. to Boston because yeah. it, it makes them feel smarter or something yeah, like that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and and so if it's if that's the kind of mentality of the you know the upper crust student i mean not all of them but like a good deal a good of, them, of them are, you know yeah. mm-hmm. they they they've been getting away with everything their entire lives yes. they come mm-hmm. to school not to get yep. good grades or learn something yep. other than you know how to get away with stuff or how yep. to um get what you want in whatever possible absolutely, way absolutely yeah there are some exceptions to this rule but you'd have to be reasonably intelligent to go to bu and other like schools like that and it is funny how there is, like, this nerd culture that is at every level, but the social structure of, like, athletes versus everybody else mm-hmm. is very much still present, even in these, like, top-of-the-lines. Like, mm. at BU, if you're a hockey player, you get oh, everything yeah. handed to you on a silver platter and the best of everything, and, you know, you can, you could probably never show up to a class and still get like a C at minimum, if not a B. And well, the alumni mm. donors, you know, really exactly. want them to, to mm. win the bean pot. Exactly. You know? That's what it's all <laughs> yeah. about. It's the bean pot. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Because we have to just shove it at BC right. whenever we can. You got to yeah. beat those gophers. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's also like you got to make money off these people. Yeah. People yeah. show up to the games. They yes. buy their T-shirts. Yeah. They buy their hot dogs. They yeah. do whatever. Yeah. And we yeah. just had recently another, everybody knows that like college, much like many of other our other institutions are, mm-hmm to some degree or another rigged systems yeah. or, uh, you know, they're, they're not equal access opportunity type things. Yeah. Uh, they're not designed to be, they're never going to be unless like we actually demand that they change and, you know, have some sort of mass, you know, movement of students to, 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 to change the way college mm-hmm. is done in, in addition to, to larger politics. But we saw the, the, the rich people basically bribing their kids into mm-hmm. school, yes. which we already knew happened anyway. Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, this stuff doesn't surprise anybody. Jared Kushner's no. dad bought Jared Kushner's spot at Harvard. Yep. He didn't do anything at Harvard but buy up properties in Somerville mm-hmm. and then flip yeah. them for a profit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, was his, exactly. that was his education. It's 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 really sense. hard not to do when you're in his position. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he's this incredible yeah. real estate prodigy or whatever. No. Well, why would you want to get an A when you can get $150,000 profit for <laughs> flipping a house? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, and, and like, it's the same thing with the athletes too. Yeah. yeah, that they know that if they put their time into practice and whatever, that mm-hmm. they could end up in the NHL, and yeah. like that's a lot more. Lo- a lot of them um, go for like sometimes, at least in the BU system, there's this school called the College of General Studies, and that's the only college in BU where you can get a two-year associate's degree, and then. Like, if you didn't want to keep going, you didn't have to. Hmm. So that that's, like, a very common move among the hockey players. They come into BU in the College of General Studies. They do it for the two years. They get their NHL contracts. They're out. And, like, hmm. but for those two years while they're there, they can just run havoc and do whatever. And, like, it's, it's very much institutional. Like, I've been at T's Pub after a hockey game where you see the dean of students taking shots with underage hockey players and Mm. like everybody's like this is normal or you know or like you see hockey players or even the basketball players showing up to class like crazy late hungover like they don't have anything prepared and that's just normal and yeah yeah, it's I, I think that the on the college note 
the change that needs to come there is somehow more poor kids weaseling into those kinds mm. of places because like i i if it weren't for merit-based um need-based and military scholarships i wouldn't have been able to walk through bu's doors it just wouldn't have happened and i was in a hard minority on all of those like playing fields but they they had a thing called uh first gen connect which was meant to be for first generation college students and at my, like, the College of Communication graduation, they did this nice little thing about first-generation people, and I was kind of like, that's cool, but, I mean, that when they had everyone stand up, it was a graduating class within COM, I want to say it was close to 4,000 people hmm. getting um, bachelor's and master's that day, hmm. less than 10 people stood up, like, myself included, so that just, it showed you that, like, that's why the BU system, I think anyway, is allowed to exist as it is because it's a bunch of privileged people creating a system for privileged people that mm. are just going to go on to be privileged. <laughs> yeah, right. And and all of the first gen connect things, you could tell it was it was just like SNL like watching sketches being acted out by women, but you could tell the writers were men. Hmm. The first gen connect, it was the same thing. It was supposed to be events for, um, you know, first generation, typically poverty students, but it was being written by privileged people because all of the topics of gatherings were all like time management money management mm -hmm. stress management and i'm like this is just insulting to me like i how do you think i got here i managed my time i'm an intelligent person like yeah, i clearly right, 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 right. i've been stressed for a while if i'm trying to go to for a college like this so like i don't i just want to make friends and find a circle i don't want to be preached at like yeah. i don't know how to which is again the american mentality exactly. right exactly it's morals for the poor yes you morals know? for the poor yeah mm -hmm. yeah in your piece there's a line here that i thought was uh really nice just want to read it here you note how the uh the writers and the and the producers of this show don't think that fictional theaters are think that fictional theaters are not nearly enough to incite the great amount of societal change that we all deserve so you can read that piece now online uh, I or... think Bill is still working on editing it. I don't think he's put my article up yet. No. So maybe when maybe by the this time show comes out, out you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll be able to check that out online. That's Deanna Marie Costa's piece about uh, the audacity women speak. It's now closed. You can't see it. Too late. Uh, Deanna beat you to it. She yes. outscooped you. Yeah. That's what journalism school gets you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some from um, shows. Sleeping Weasel. Um, and we're going to talk about another privileged BU alum in the next segment. a bunch of you have probably already seen or heard about the uh, new short film that was published on The Intercept on uh, Wednesday night, I believe it was, or Wednesday morning, that uh, within about 24 hours had been viewed, at last count, something like more than 4 million times mm -hmm. uh, online. 
it's a, uh, a a message from the future about the basically, I guess, the best possible scenario mm-hmm. uh, that uh, AOC or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the Democratic Congresswoman from the Bronx, has introduced into the House. Uh, which is supposed to take care of all of our problems and yeah. all of our social ills, <laughs> I guess. It's pretty much a utopia uh, bill. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think utopia is a very... Co-written, um, I think, by Ed Markey. Yes. Or one of our senators. Oh, Markey yes. from... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or maybe he does the Senate version and she does the House version. Oh, that yeah. could be. Yeah. 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 Co-sponsored, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? I don't, think a, I don't think yeah. a senator can sponsor a bill in the House. Well, if he does the Senate, I don't know. I, I think yeah. co-written is what I was yeah. what I was under the impression of. Can a senator? Well, no, he can't sponsor it in the House, probably. But but this is a piece that is intentionally political propaganda. Yes. Intentionally political art, and the accompanying piece that goes with the short film is written by Naomi Klein, mm-hmm. uh, who's written things like uh, about like disaster capitalism. Her major contributions to the Intercept last year were about her uh, Hurricane Maria and Irma in Puerto Rico and how um, all these like libertarian tech like cryptocurrency people like just like pounced on the island and they're basically trying to like you know they, they just take advantage of a crisis or a crisis where you know the Puerto Ricans are totally fucked they're all poor they don't have houses they don't have electricity or doctors or schools uh, so we're just going to go in uh, and also the, 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 the economy is completely fucked mm-hmm. uh, and under austerity and basically run by Congress so uh, the capitalists go in and they can basically essentially buy the island and and build their own you know libertarian utopia on the backs of and at the expense of the people in Puerto Rico. Naomi Klein's article is sort of not so much an explanation but an observation of what political art in the age of the Green New Deal could possibly mean. Going back to the video real quick though, it's done by uh, the artist and I guess uh, director uh, Molly Crabapple or Crabapple. daughter of edna daughter of edna right yeah and it's one of those stop motion videos you used to see them like in like explainer type videos Mm -hmm. uh on youtube a lot where like the person draws in like picture form the words that are being narrated so uh aoc narrates the story which is her as i imagine either like a senator or a a veteran congressperson or something like that she's still taking what she describes as the bullet train like a very standard sort of narrative trope uh, but applicable to the situation because mass transit, high-speed rail, these are certainly things that if you're going to do a Green New Deal, you're definitely going to want these kinds of mm-hmm. uh, uh, mass transport uh, infrastructure type things. But she's done on a high-speed rail train from New York to Washington, D.C. And she's describing the process by which the Green New Deal transformed the entire American economy, the entire American culture, all of society, uh, introducing things like universal health care, a jobs guarantee complete renewable energy, paying health workers, you know, uh, in-home health care people, child care workers, all that kind of stuff, uh, real money and actually valuing different forms of work that are currently either right now not valued uh, and done for either poverty wages or mm-hmm. there are attempts to automate it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, But so that's the kind of video that it is. It's real short. It's about seven and a half minutes long. And Naomi Klein talks about how what she what she sees in this particular form of propaganda is that it is a hearkening back to uh, the way that art played a role in the original New Deal uh, under FDR. Yeah. Obviously, you had the WPA, there were massive public art projects. Uh, Jackson Pollock was involved. I think James Baldwin and Richard Wright, you know, were. John were, Steinbeck. Were, yeah. John Steinbeck. They were doing, um, producing really amazing work, you know, but funded by the federal government. 
some of the work from the, uh, the FDR's New Deal was explicitly propagandistic in order to reflect the benefits of this type of program. But then at the same time, they were producing amazing works of art as well. Great plays, great books, great um, installations. And this is sort of a weird way to go about reintroducing the idea of art under uh, a New Deal type situation or New Deal society uh, because we don't have a New Deal society. It's, right. It doesn't exist. They're and so that's one of the issues it. that they talk about in the piece is that how could you do this when the Green New doesn't exist? And it's interesting that AOC does it because, I mean, obviously she's ambitious and the plans that she has here, of course there are, you know, details in it and stuff. Uh, a lot of it remains to be seen, but it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty explicit in what they're looking to do, what they're looking to accomplish. But I think of AOC's function right now as mostly a propagandist in the house. That's kind of like her job. And that's a completely useful and legitimate political function. And so she's definitely the right person to do a piece like this. But the main thing is that it's kind of utopian. And, you know, mm -hmm. as much as I want the stuff to happen that happens in this video, uh, for the most part, I, I, I fall back in sort of my pessimistic ways as well. Yeah, where it's like, I agree. I, I, I think that sounds great, but... <laughs> There's a lot of people she has to convince that right. I don't know that they will ever be convinced mm -hmm. of a lot. But I I don't know if FDR faced a similar wave and it worked out. I mean, him. he probably had it oh, worse. Oh, no, he did. But... I mean, the bankers, you know, tried to have a coup, essentially. Right. They thought it was tyranny. They thought right. it was communism. But, of course, mm -hmm. the, the purpose of the New Deal was to stave off, you know, communism. It was to save capitalism. It yeah. wasn't to that. And so I wonder... Is this Green New Deal also a version of, you know, saying, well, like, look, either we keep going the way that we go and we have some sort of violent, you know, turmoil in society mm -hmm. or massive extinction and destruction through climate change, mm -hmm. or we do something to preserve some semblance of the existing social structure, uh, but that helps a little bit more people. And I yeah. still don't know where people are going to come down on what the New Deal actually means or represents. And I think it's through these artistic interpretations that we might get a sense of what that actually means or how we can start to think about having that conversation. But Naomi Klein's article says that um, she wanted to think about the future in non-dystopic terms because mm -hmm. it's right. that's kind of the default mode right now is to think of it in terms of, oh, well, we're just going to boil alive and it's going to suck and it's going to be massive. Um, My favorite was somebody who told me that, don't worry, in the future, when global warming starts to erode places, suddenly uh, global spots will become vacation destinations when they weren't before. Oh, sure. That's you've got, true. I've, you've, I've read about that. You've got yeah. the, um, yeah, people will Which be... just like, great, don't care. People How about we, we like, not <laughs> flood and have everyone die? <laughs> right. People will be hanging out at uh, the Utica resorts. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Beachfront um, property. I think it was... And... Um, the Twin Cities, they said, are, okay. will probably be a flocked to place once climate change really starts taking hold. And the sick mentality is the one that looks at that as a as a capitalistic opportunity, mm -hmm. right? You know, mm -hmm. much like what I was just saying about Puerto Rico, you know, it's like, well, uh, the frequency and the devastation of the two storms that hit Puerto Rico in, I think it was 2016 or 2017, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, 2017, I think, yeah. The, the libertarian tech you know, uh, uh, weirdos go and say like, well, we can just recreate this in our own image, you know, because the people are completely devastated at this point. So we, we, we have absolute power. And so there's going to be the people that both, I mean, from within AOC's party and the opposing party, and then, of course, the general populace that will either think of it in those terms 
or not be able to be convinced because it is easier for people to, I think, imagine uh, the end of the world happening in the distant future uh, and affecting other people and not mm -hmm. them than it is to actually think of changing, having wholesale structural change to the system that we live in. Yeah, I would say so. And I also think that if you look at American history in general, we've kind of become very reactionary type people rather than proactive yeah. type. Like the, the New Deal didn't happen until like the worst economic depression that anyone had ever seen. And people were very... Um, universally starving to death not not right. quite as like stratified as it is right now right so yeah i that's that's my hesitation like i was kind of on board with the whole video until she was narrating the part where she said something like you know in 2020 the democrats took back the white house and it started and the, the senate that yeah right. yeah like the era mm -hmm. of the new the green new deal yeah. and i'm like oh, do I want to believe that that's what's going to happen? Absolutely. Right. Do I think without a doubt? I, I don't know. I really don't know. And what does that Democratic Party look like? I mean, exactly, Like yeah. the party that's going to win in 2020, if it's going to win in 2020, it looks a lot like what it looks like right now, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, the leaders of the Democratic Party, not all of them are on board no. with the Green New Deal, you know? Uh, Naomi Klein says that in doing this this project, they reclaim what Nancy Pelosi called the the Green New Deal, which she called a green dream, meaning yes. it's never going to happen. Yeah. So they reclaimed it from her and said, yeah, it is a dream, but, you know, it's it's a positive vision of the future. Right. And we're going to choose to think about it in those terms because yeah. we really don't have another, uh, another choice. Yeah. And it is fair to say, look, it's an idea. Let's go after the idea. Like, uh, when people talk about that, I can understand breaking down the dollars and cents is totally fair. And, like, mm -hmm. we should criticize that. Especially that, like, people on the left should be criticizing that. Because you don't want to just fall for some crazy idea that isn't going to go anywhere. But right. at the same time, legislative initiatives are ideas. They're concepts. They're right. things that we should aim towards. Right. So if we don't get there, that's okay. At least we'll be heading in that direction. Right. You know what I mean? Rather than just saying, that's an impossible direction, let's just not even bother. Right. right. I, th I think that's, that's the big problem with the Democratic Party right now anyway, though, is that you have, like, two ends of the spectrum, which is, like, young, pretty... I would say, like, hard, left-leaning, like, AOC types, and then, like, Nancy Pelosi, who's been around the block. She knows you kind of have to walk the middle to make anything happen, but maybe walks the middle too hard, plays it too safe, and, yeah, I, I'm also curious, too, to see who they get all get behind in the actual, like, once it gets down to primaries and yeah. all of that. It's not consequential enough to a Nancy Pelosi type or her class of politician and the, mm -hmm. the class of people that she represents to actually lose. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so walking the middle and losing is a perfectly acceptable political tactic for, for the Democratic Party in, in, in most of the parts of the country and definitely yeah. at the national level. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fossil fuel companies that fuel Republican campaigns yeah. also fuel Democrat campaigns. Yes, they definitely You know, do. like Beto O'Rourke wins the White House in 2020. Probably not going to see a Green New Deal. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he he comes from from Texas. He gets checks written to him by big wealthy uh, right. real estate developers and right. oil and oil uh, executives. To a certain extent, like whoever wins the nomination, like their test is going to be 
how willing will you be to bite the hand that feeds you? Yes, that's very true. You know? Yeah. Because, like, FDR, I mean, FDR was not a man of the streets. No, FDR was born to oh, immense he's, privilege. Yeah. He's, he's, and I don't he's say New that... York upper crust. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't, and I didn't even realize this when my friend was born. New York City, out. not Utica. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. NYC. Hyde Park. Yeah. yeah Hyde yeah. Park. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, so, and I don't say this to criticize him because whatever, you're born to wealth, you're born to wealth. His heart's in the right place right. and he uses it in a good way. So I don't, I don't, right. that doesn't automatically disqualify him to me. And I did not realize this, but apparently the Roosevelt's made their crazy money mm -hmm. during the opium wars. Oh, I didn't know that. Dutch okay. traders. I didn't Dutch know that. Dutch opium, whatever. Dutch opium selling. Yeah. yeah, from couple generations prior to Teddy and, and, and Frank. And right. so... But, so they're war profiteers. So, well, they're like drug dealers. <laughs> Makes sense. Like, yes. They were getting cuts off of the opium they were but selling. Like, but so, um, so, the, so in a way, like him being highborn helped him because then he could talk to the 1% upper class people yes. and say, listen, like, if this doesn't happen, like, they're going to come with pitchforks and torches and burn down yep. your goddamn mansions. Yep. And like, he could actually express that. Um, which I think is a big thing, but he could also have, he had the political backup to be able to say, kiss my ass to the powerful. Yes. And he was willing to say like, no, you guys need to rethink this. Yeah. And those two things are really crucial. You have to be able to speak the language of the people who you have to convince who are way beyond, you know, the average, uh, struggling American mm -hmm. and you need a voting base to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, like, anything can happen if you have the voting base for it. Klein says, We realize that the biggest obstacle to the kind of transformative change the Green New Deal envisions is overcoming the skepticism that humanity could ever pull off something at this scale and speed. That's the message we've been hearing from the quote-unquote serious center for four months straight, that it's too big, too ambitious, that our Twitter-addled brains are incapable of it. And that we are destined to just watch. This was a weird line. I don't know what she's referencing here. Mm. But she says, destined to just watch walruses fall to their deaths on Netflix until it's too late. Is there oh. like an epidemic of walrus suicides? Well, there's that. There's a recent, I don't know if it's like a documentary series or something. I think it's called Our, Our Earth or something. Hmm. And I think it's about, not, not particularly about climate change, but just about animals in general and i'm sure like some of it's about that like the environment's changing and them not being able to thrive in it, but but where are these are these walruses on cliffs i don't like, know maybe they... no it's like ice shelves oh, yeah, i, I think say... like falling apart and then like just watching devastate you know environmental like documentaries about environmental devastation yeah and again there's there's like a lot of opportunity for people to watch these kinds of documentaries and to like think about these things it's just people don't know what the hell to do after yeah that. yeah that's very right true. yeah so they're like okay it's bad but what am i just like taking it in and being depressed by it and yeah. Just, yeah and then being like okay i don't know the, sucks. that video from what was it the democracy now coverage of mm -hmm. it where they did the interview with I, I think the guy's name was avi lewis he like co-wrote yeah the narrative with aoc right and he he said this one i thought it was like a good quote but he said we are living in terrifying times and for those of us who are committed to vast and rapid change we're living in a state of engagement that is not fun a lot of the time when I see people's responses to this work and the amount of emotion that it's unleashed, I'm really struck by how much, not just hope, but an actual vision, a fully articulated vision of the world that we are fighting for, 
we need it. It orients us, it reminds us of what we're doing all this work for, and it unleashes incredible political potential as well. And I was like basically summarizing why they did the propaganda Mm -hmm. that they did pretty Mm -hmm. much. Yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely a good um, motive. But I wonder if what's in the video is actually that sort of holistic vision, Mm. you know, it's it's a list of things. It's a list of demands. Right. You know, but I think as we've even just sort of just in talking about it here, just uh, somewhat casually recognize that there's some serious inherent contradictions, I think, to even that vision. And so does does what's described here represent that totalizing worldview? I think in order to achieve what they wanted to achieve, they had to do it the way that they did it. You know, they kind of had to be sort of taken over prisoners. No, we're going to, we, we, we can't let cynicism or pessimism or anything like that infiltrate what this is because mm-hmm. this has to be like a literal jubilee type uh, uh, work of art. You know, to it has to, to be yeah. a, com- mm-hmm. yeah. it has to at least yeah. appear to be or feel like a complete upheaval of society. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, does the art world have space for that kind of hopefulness? But we've gone from, you know, talking about uh, the way that an idea doesn't exist unless you have some sort of material representation of it right. from the intellectual history and the political movements that uh, influenced America and American culture right. to the very real on the ground personal histories of women's struggles in, in, in American society and right. around the world, uh, particularly things like sexual violence and how that's meant to inspire ideas. And then this one, you characterized it as what we do is we shoot for that idea because right. at least we're in the right direction, still dependent on some sort of electoral system. What I think they're, what they have to straddle here is that it has to be that dialect that it goes back to the material demands of what's actually in the Green New Deal. Right. And that's the thing that's going to stop people. If you just go for that idea, if you just tell Nancy Pelosi, yeah, no, Nancy Pelosi, it's, it's just an idea. Let's right. just like, let's just sort of like toss it out there and see how many, you know, uh, co-sponsors we can get and you know uh, we won't have a vote on it because we don't want it to lose and we'll wait you know another 10 years or something like that mm-hmm. it, it can't be an idea it has to be an actual disruption to the way that we produce things to the way that we consume things to the ways that we uh, engage with artistic representation about how we relate to each other as a society right in the 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 video AOC eventually gets to talking about how we're no longer afraid of each other we're no longer afraid of the right. future it becomes like far-reaching right and it becomes about the interpersonal relationships of americans who see themselves as either you know on one side of you know a political divide or another Mm -hmm. uh currently uh or are subscribing to politics of xenophobia or Mm -hmm. you know total fear of the other in each of the things that we've discussed on the show today it's gone back and forth between the material reality of the ideas that are represented and the ideas that the material reality actually stimulates and encourages to think about Yeah. yeah right we could get Hegelian with this shit if you want, but yeah, see the listeners. I'm always down to get Hegelian with this shit, man. I really wish I'd paid more attention in all those philosophy classes that I got okay grades in, but even so. I'd say the listeners are tired. Rock the phenomenology. Wake them up, damn it. We've got synthesizing to do.